Thank you for that triumphant song. That's, um, I actually learned it from Candace's dad, uh, what, where that song came from. That was the, the song that the Mormons sang as they went to the west when they were chased out of the east. And just with a few little adaptions, it's made, it's a beautiful song. It's a, it's a triumphant song. It's a song of faith. Um, it, it reaches in, it, as you say, you have a, I think, Heinrich said that uh, faith is something you take with you, but faith is something that needs to be awakened <laughs> at times. And, uh, the words of that song does that. And especially when you go through difficult times, like they expressed there in their testimony, that life is always not on top of things. Sometimes it's very much questions. What is going on? Well, if you could, let's stand one more time and let's have a word of prayer before we go forward. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you will go with us. You are with us. You will go with us. That we can trust you to provide. Whether that providing is physical things or whether that providing is spiritual food, Lord. Whether that providing, Lord, is the grace that we need, Lord. We can trust you to provide. And Lord, if you will provide, then all is well. Thank you, Lord. I just pray, Lord, you would provide this morning manna from heaven for our souls. I pray, Lord, you would speak to us, Lord. We have heard about your word, how it is a light and a hammer and a mirror. And we pray, Lord, that your word would do its work this morning in our hearts. Lord, we're not We're not just playing. This is not a game, Lord. This is life. This is eternity. This is, this is children and children's children and Lord. And it's, uh, we have a, there's a, there's a world watching. There's so much at stake, Lord. We just pray, Lord, for your, for your manna, for your grace, for your mercy on us this morning as we look into your word and as we, as we uh, seek to understand your heart and to follow it. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. In the study, as we go on in 1 Peter, we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, which talks about the wives submitting to their husbands and uh, has uh, has some more there. And... uh, one of the themes that Paul has, Peter has in this letter, one of the themes is the self-identification of strangers and pilgrims. God's people will always be misfits among their peers, among the society. And to use a musical or a military term, they march to the beat of a different drum. Now, the thing is, God's people do march. If God's people are faithful, they will march. They will march 
to a structure and to an order. But it will not be the same structure or order that is generally around them. And so it looks like a mismatch. But God's people march to the beat of God's drum. And today, the Bible text has two such subjects that will distinguish us as such. And that is a woman's submission to their husbands and modesty in dress. We won't talk much about modesty today, actually. We'll, we'll refer to it a few times, but we won't get, that won't be the main theme this morning. But that, those two are topics that you will not hear in the public schools. You will not hear them from the government. You will not hear them from basically any institution from culture. You will hear it from God. Now, some people have pretty strong emotions and opinions connected to it. And uh, there are some, this is the, the general trend in our culture, this is the trend in our culture, um, they oppose any distinctions in roles between men and women. And there's no value put on feminine modesty or reserve or, yeah, or that. In fact, it's considered to be demeaning, abusive, oppressive, and toxic. Those two topics, both of those, are considered that way. <clears throat> but God's people are unique in more than one way. Because while... While God's people believe in the, in the different roles of the genders, and they do believe in modesty, they actually don't go to the other ditch in the application of these principles. In Africa, maybe you can tell me more about it, Tim, but it was historically, and it probably still is in some places, it is... It is custom for men to beat their wives. Is that right? I've heard about that. Never actually bumped into anyone that I know of. Three wax. Okay. But the idea that a husband is, is actually three wax to his wife, the idea is, is, is that uh, the husband is in charge and the wife is supposed to listen. So you have that in place, right? That's in place. So we have order and role in their place. Similarly, in many Muslim countries, you have women that dress modestly in the whole way up to the burqa where everything is covered. When you go in public, nothing is seen except you got this hood over the face and, of course, a real extreme way you only have the eyes coming out. I don't know. That's probably still common in some places. In those two examples of um, a wife beating and burkas, I will join the liberal segment. 
and I will say. That is demeaning, it's abusive, it's oppressive, and it's toxic. So God's people embrace neither of those positions. The, the, um, where the, every, all the, 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 um, where there's no difference and there's no modesty versus there is abusive and oppressive kind of expressions of that. There is actually a straight and narrow road in the middle that God's people walk on. And it's, it's, it's this road that God wants us to walk because it, it kills the sinful carnal flesh in both men and women. <laughs> That's God's plan because there's that natural and carnal part of us. And, uh, and there's a road that will take care of both of them. And it exalts. This road exalts the wisdom and the character of the living God. So we're going to read here in First Peter. You can turn there, First Peter chapter 3. We're actually not going to spend much time in this as I, as I, as I was thinking of this. And if there's any qualifiers I'm going to make, it is actually that I have more of a topical message this morning than I do actually a text message here. But we are going to read the text here anyhow. The title this morning is The Complementarian Model. First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1, we'll read to verse 8. Likewise, ye wise, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wise, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and a wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corrupt, corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So it starts there, uh, is uh, likewise, ye wives, and uh, the paraphrase says, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. And that, in the same way, is referring to what was before. We, in the same way that we accept the authority of the government, that we accept the authority of masters, a servant accepts the authority of a master, in the same way, wives should accept the authority of your husband. Now, it's not the fact that it's, hard to understand that causes people to react to this, but it's the fact that it's hard not to understand that is the problem. <clears throat> now, we would expect the unbeliever, the one who has no regard for the word of God, to reject this. We, would, we could expect that. 
But the truth is there is a major battle in the evangelical or the church in general in this area. There are two major camps, and these are the two camps that I'll be talking about this morning, the egalitarian and the complementarian camp. Now, I'm going to give you definitions first. Egalitarian view is that men and women are equal in every respect and role. There is no authority structure. In the husband and wife, there is only mutual submission. And there are no restrictions that a woman, in roles that a woman can fill. She can do anything that a man can do in society, in the home, and in the church, including pastor, elder, whatever. And there's a lot of books, uh, and the marriages are 50-50. And there's a lot of books written. And I remember the first time I, I actually was in that home messenger library 20, 25 years ago. This is a Mennonite library, and they had they had inherited a library, a church library from somewhere else. And there was this Methodist book there, an old book, probably back in the early to mid-1900s, that gave, uh, gave the biblical um, justification, whatever you call it, of uh, why a woman can be a preacher and a pastor. And I brought it to the attention of there. That was the first act that bumped it. But there's lots and lots of books that will say that. And, of course, today there's more than just books. And they have their verse. It's in Galatians 3.28, the silver bullet verse. And this is what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. That is meant to say that all in the, in the gospel, in the Old Testament, yep, but in the gospel, all distinctions are taken away. And that becomes the guiding principle, that becomes the North Star. If there's anything else in the New Testament that says anything different, then it has to be reinterpreted to fit the, 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 the North Star, this verse. So it cannot mean, the other, other verses that say different cannot mean that. Maybe it was cultural. Paul was a misogynist. Submission is just mutual and equal and, and other things like that. Now, the complementarian view is a, it's a view that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage and in family life and in religious leadership. Now, you won't find the word complementary in the Bible. But you won't find the word trinity in the Bible either. But the word trinity is a word that is coined to describe the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this word complementarianism or complementary was actually a word that was coined only about 35 years ago of my understanding. That it was used to describe the, the difference that there are different roles. Now, egalitarians are, for the most part, absolutists. In other words, there's just no distinction. So there's not a whole lot of differences in egalitarian. There's a little bit. But when it comes to complementarian camp, there's quite a bit of different viewpoints of what the different roles are. 
a woman and so on. So that, that does vary some. Now, the complementarian view is clearly taught in Scripture, and it has its roots not in Paul, but in creation. So I'm going to read a number of those verses, and then we'll go on from there. So I'll, I'll just read them, familiar verses to you. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Colossians three eighteen, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as is fit in the Lord. There's that qualifier, as is fit in the Lord. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to your authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And 1 Corinthians 11.3 For I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now these verses are familiar to us, and I don't think I need to convince anyone here. But maybe I do. <laughs> because... As we wash up against the world in various shapes and forms, um, sometimes we actually get some dirt on us, like was referred. Sometimes we need to look in the Word of God and actually see, well, maybe some of my ideas may actually not be what it was. Because we interact with the world around us, with its books and with its media. And so it's possible. And and rather rather than assume that we all believe it and just let it go for generations on. Maybe we should just have a, have a little bit of a teaching on it. Because compromise, and this I want you to, this is now a, a portion of the message I want us to understand. Compromise begets more compromise. And in ex, I have, have several examples of this. The first one I have is 10 or 15 years ago, the culture was pushing homosexual marriage. And the churches, the, many churches were standing against it. The, 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 actually, in 2015 is when the Supreme Court finally legalized it and, and, and basically required all the states to accept it. That's 2015. That's not that long ago. But those pushing challenged the American churches in this way. They say, you are saying that the Bible says that homosexual marriage is wrong. But the Bible also says, can you guess what I'm going to say? Divorce is wrong. You accept divorce and remarry people in the church. Even a good number of your pastors are divorced and remarried. That's a clear violation of the scripture. Why then do you single out homosexuals and the one area you, you, you don't obey the scripture and then this area you say you have to obey the scripture? See, that compromise, 
was begun decades ago, and I just think of Heinrich this morning again, how, how generational things go on down the line. That compromise of divorce and remarriage occurred several generations ago. And it seriously has weakened the church's position and moral high ground today in this other area because consistency is essential for long-term health and strength because what we sow, we are going to reap. Now, a similar thing is true in the area of women's submission and modesty. Think about modesty right now. Most churches that today still hold to the complementarian position that women have different roles do not teach on women's modesty. And they will defend the one while they will explain the other one away. And uh, there was there's a there was a new Christ, new Christian who asked a famous pastor, and if I would say the name of this pastor here across the pulpit here. You would know his name. You may have read some of his books. This young Christian asked this pastor why women can't be church leaders. And here's some of the words of the change reported by him. He said, the first time I asked why, why women can't be church leaders, he excitedly explained that 1 Timothy 2 clearly prohibits women from leading men. That's the verse that we read this morning. Rather ignorant, just saying his words here, rather ignorant at the, to the, rather ignorant to the powers at play in this argument, I noted, this young man noted that the same passage also prohibits women from enhancing their look, makeup, hair, wearing jewelry, earrings, gold, pearls, and dressing nicely. That's his words. This was not well received. After fumbling through a response, he concluded that the last part of the passage is durable and true, while the earlier parts are strictly cultural and not transferable today. He said that was a convenient argument. He said, I remember not buying it. And that man went on to become a convinced egalitarian. But note how compromise in one area greatly weakened the position of other areas. And again, modesty was once preached and practiced by the church in general. Modesty, simplicity, reserve. It shunned the glamour and the display and the fashion, but it's no longer taught, it's no longer practiced. But it is attempting, these churches are attempting from this seriously compromised position to still hold on against the onslaught of society a complementarian view and practice of women and men. 1 Corinthians 11 is another scripture that clearly teaches from creation that the headship of, the headship of man in relation to woman. But in that passage, it also teaches a woman is to cover her head. It's a, and that covered head is a sign of the headship order and, a, and an, exa, an expression of modesty. And the entire church pretty well at some uh, back then, the entire church practiced some expression of it. 
And now, complementary churches are attempting to say that one is binding today, but the other is not. What I want us to realize this morning is, I want us to realize the capital that we have, the position of strength that we have, uh, to resist the, the cultural onslaughts of feminism and egalitarianism. There's a lot of churches that are resisting it from a compromised position, and we, we are actually resisting it from a, from a position of strength. We have not given ground in the area of divorce and modesty or head covering. So, but the egalitarian view of marriage, I don't know how much you're out, but it, it, the entire, the pressures are on, let's say it that way, to go that direction, to not discriminate. The pressures are on in society, and it's gaining popularity, and it is actually capitulating a lot of churches, too. And it's a cultural setting is why it's doing that. The cultural winds are that way. Now, it's probably not that way for most, for some other parts of the world. I think it's mostly a Western phenomenon. If you go into the East and Africa and so on, they would still have a more traditional view of marriage. But we are affected by our culture. Um, I want to give a few examples of, of how culture comes into the church. And this doesn't actually have to do exactly with spirituality in a sense, but in one sense it does. Um, in the 40s and 50s, it was the general public's pattern to have short, men have short hair. And the Amish, you know the Amish haircut, they're, they're straight down and, and they had the, they, they had the, German peasant haircut that they kept from centuries past. And it was their intention to keep that haircut. They were struggling with, and like I said, this is not spiritual, this is cultural, but I'll give you the example. They were struggling with the young people because the haircuts just, just tried to get shorter and shorter until something happened in society. Do you remember what happened in the 60s? You don't. No, you don't remember. (laughs) The hippie movement came, and all of a sudden, long hair was fashionable and faddish. And don't you believe it? Those young Amish men quit having their hair get shorter. It got longer. But it didn't get longer after the standard pattern. It got longer in the strangly loose fashionable way so the question here it used to be acceptable in our culture that a husband that a a wife is under her husband and that women and men have different roles but it's not that way anymore. And I'm just wondering, can that culture affect us? And that is the question. Because what is out, what is in the world does have also an effect to the, to the church. Does it have an effect, especially on our young people and on our daughters? I was trying to figure out, yeah. 
There's one other thing I think I'll just I'll just say it. I don't I don't know if it's here, but there's something I had that's similar to the Amish. That that exp, that uh, illustration I gave. It's generally the tendency for the head coverings on our sisters to get smaller and smaller. And generally, it's the struggle to keep it from getting smaller. There's, I think I'm correct with this, and we can talk about this later, but there's a phenomenon going on that we have a congresswoman who has a full-size covering. Somehow or another, in general society, to actually have a head covering has become fashionable, at least in some elements. And, and sizable ones. I mean, you're going to have one, you're going to have one, right? And maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not. But I am wondering, it comes fashionable, it comes a big head covering, but not the normal style, some other style. I think it's happening in some of our churches. Just a thought. You can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would put you put us or whoever does that in the same category as those Amish young boys. <laughs> You're doing it because of society fashion rather than scriptural conviction. And there is a difference. And I'm not speaking to anyone here that I know of. But just a thought there. Okay. Uh, there's not nearly enough time to address this comprehensively. For, uh, for the rest of the message, I will focus some on the husbands and wives, how they should relate to, your other, to each other, and answer a few objections to the complementarian view. <clears throat> there is a couple of verses in Philippians that are really precious to me. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, or the last half of 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That verse has become my go-to verse in recent months. And the thought of that God is inside of me, and he's working inside of me. He's, he's inside of me, and he's working inside of me. And what is he working? He is working in me to, it gives me the desire, and he gives me the power to do what pleases him. Now, you just think about that, and you think about that for five hours. <laughs> God is inside of me, and he is giving me the desire to do his will, and he is giving me the power to do his will. That is awesome. If we live in this reality, it will, it will revolutionize our lives. But the thing is, I have other things living inside of me, and I have other voices outside of me. And it's not like we are in heaven and we only hear God's voice, because we don't. We hear many voices. So I have lots of pulls and lots of desires and lots of pleasures. And so, so what should my response be? Well, he says it there. We should have fear and trembling. God is inside of me. He's inside of you. You know, that's the whole verse. Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Christ in you, you have an expectation, a confident expectation that you're going to be in glory someday. Christ in you, that's salvation. Now work that out with fear and trembling. Don't let the other voices drown out that voice. The paraphrase says it this here. I'm not, not quite, don't like quite the sound of it, but it's close. Work hard to show the results of your salvation by obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Now, the question is, why am I bringing that up now? Why do I bring up this idea about God inside of us, giving us the desire and the power to do his will? Why do I bring it up now? The thing is, we are a complementarian people. We believe that and we practice that in a sea we are an island in a sea of egalitarians. And we are saying, complementarian, this, this, or thing you're to describe, this is God's will, this is God's way, this is right. That's what we're saying. Where most others are not saying that. Well, what I think is we had better do it right. <laughs> we had... We should, we had better have marriages that are functioning well. They're not just lasting, they're not just enduring, but they are prospering and they're thriving and they're flourishing. We, we really should have marriages that demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in them of sacrificial love and marriages that have joy, marriages that have peace. Marriages that have long-suffering and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. And last Sunday we heard self-control. Marriages need to have, in other words, God is working inside of us, each individually. That expression should come out in our relationships. Because if we say this is the right way, then we should actually have some kind of demonstration. That's my burden there. So we need to have a deep reverential fear, reverence and fear towards God and not for our flesh. And this is for husbands and wives. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that relationship. Now, if we read the New Testament without any outside input, no preconceived notions, we would see complementarian clearly taught. That's not a question. We do march to the beat of a different drum. God is drumming and we are marching. And how are we in that time? <clears throat> Actually, a flourishing marriage is, though it takes two to really have a marriage to flourish, it actually depends more on the husband than it does the wife. I mean, I'm talking about a marriage where a wife, they're talking about a wife submitting. That's the text this morning. But it, it includes two. But the husband actually has the greater role. So most of what I will say will apply to the husband, but we'll talk first to the wife. Likewise, you wives, be in, subject to, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means supporting and not just believing 
that your husband had the chief role in guiding and directing the home. It's supporting it, not just believing it, but supporting it. That's what submission is. Submission is not done kicking and screaming. You know what that's called? That's called rebellion. The way we submit is as important as submitting itself. Submission starts for the wives, and this is this is something you can take. This is the submission starts with the humble recognition of God's divine ordering of his creation. That's where submission starts. God has a divine order. My husband is the head of the home, and that's where it starts. Now, this submission is called to be voluntary, not called to be enforced. The call for submission is to be joyful rather than begrudging because, says, you do it as unto the Lord. You would not do anything begrudging to the Lord. So submission to a husband, to his leadership, is to be joyful. <clears throat> my place, this is, this is a woman, my place as a servant of the Lord is to live under his lordship of Jesus. Because I'm going to live under your lordship, I'm going to submit to this man, this imperfect man, this man that has smelly socks and you can put in whatever you want to. He's not. I know that someone has said, well, yeah, okay, uh, so, so Christ submitted to the Father, but he had a perfect Father. Christ had a perfect Father. It was easy to submit to God. It was easy. It is true that the Father is perfect. And it is true that Christ submitted to the Father. But it is not true that it was easy. In fact, what Christ was called to do in submitting to his father was more difficult than probably any one of us will ever be called to do. So we are called, a wife is called to submit. And here's a statement that I had in another message. There's no such thing as a spiritually mature godly wife who doesn't find victory in willingly submitting to her husband. Now, that basically means that the fact that there's a struggle, the fact that there is failures, that's not what I'm talking about, but a, a spiritually mature, an expression of spiritual maturity and godliness is someone who has found victory in that area. Now, to the husband, submission of your wife does not mean that you, that your wife is micromanaged. She may have her own laugh. She may have be herself. Nor does it mean that she doesn't make any decisions at all. She is not a permanent three-year-old. She is a sister in the Lord. She has authority in the home. She has authority over the children. 
And it doesn't mean that a woman can't have some expectations from her husband. <clears throat> there is no command in the Bible that says a husband is to subject his wife under him. He is to lead. He is to guide the home. He is to sacrificially love his wife. He is to cherish her. He is to not be bitter against her. But he is not called to bring her into subjection. <laughs> so, your husband, husbands, it's not your job to quote the Bible every time your wife fails in this area. When she disagrees with you, your job is to love her. And her job is to submit to you. The minute you make it your job to do her job in marriage, you're going to head down a spiral that you can't get out of without changing your ways. And that goes both ways. Um, I think that might be later. Later. But if you take it your responsibility to make sure your husband leads correctly and you make it your responsibility to make sure your wife submits to you, you have, <laughs> well, it won't be a good picture. The egalitarians will have their heyday on that one. And there are, unfortunately, many marriages like that. Let not your marriage be one of those. <clears throat> If you remove those two things where she does his job making him lead and he does her job making her submit, you take those two things out, you're still going to have things that you have to work through and you still have issues of marriage. You're still going to have them. But you're going to remove two major conflicts of marriage. So where a husband loves his wife but doesn't demand submission and where a wife respects her husband and lets him lead and trusts the Lord. She will do her role whether the husband does his or not. And he will do her his role of loving his wife whether she fulfills her role or not. That is what our calling is. We are not to be fixated on the thing the other is doing wrong, but we are to be preoccupied with my responsibility and my duty and my role, which is basically obedience to the Lord. That's what it is. That's what we're called to do. And that's where we should be preoccupied on. <clears throat> so the husband's role or his job is not completed when he rules his wife. His calling is fulfilled when he loves his wife sacrificially like Christ did the church. And the wife is to voluntarily rein herself in and embrace the God-given headship over her and to be subject to her husband. She is not running the mission. She is running in submission. She is running. She's active. She's busy. She does all of that. As she embraces the headship God gave by her, and you can just think Proverbs 31 if you want to. That woman, of all she was doing, a competent woman, an accomplished woman, 
a, a woman with a role, and yet there was her husband over her. <clears throat> it is our utmost importance that we de- demonstrate how this works in real life. And both men and women are called to deny ourselves and to follow Christ's example. Matthew Henry says that if if women had not sinned, if the woman had not sinned, she would have always obeyed her husband with humility and meekness. If the man had not sinned, he would have always ruled with wisdom and love. And the question I bring, the reason I bring that up is what does the grace of God do? The grace of God redeems. So you have the original and then you have the fall and then you have the grace of God, the gospel coming in that redeems. And so the grace of God redeems, it restores, it reestablishes what was lost, not perfectly. And not without failures, but it does redeem. If the grace of God is working in your life and in your life and in my life, it it will be powerful and it will be effective and it will be successful. The grace of God can do that in any situation. Uh, so any situation, I'm going to have to qualify that. There are always exceptions in far as success in marriage, there's always exceptions to that. But we're talking in general. <clears throat> the grace of God can take any harsh or cruel or a passive man and make him a gentle and gracious and godly leader. The gospel can take any woman who is controlling and manipulative and nagging and domineering and disrespectful and make her a respectful and loving and submissive wife with a powerfully gentle and quiet spirit. Powerfully gentle, quiet spirit. It's You just try to wrap your mind around the power, the power of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Uh, sometime I want to meditate on that. But it's beautiful. <clears throat> That's the design and the will of God. And this is what needs to be demonstrated to the world that opposes it. Let it be said of the world like they did about Jesus. They hated me without a cause. Jesus was not a simple person, but they hated him because of what he stood for. We should have lives that demonstrate that they have no reason to hate us. So they say, okay, so it's oppressive. You are squashing the creativity of your women. But you have flourishing and gracious and fulfilled women. What for fault can they say? In fact, you go out and have a career, it's not very pleasant out there. I think I heard some of that this morning, some of the disorder and so on from Candace. But they hated the complementary structure without a cause because it's beautiful, it's wholesome, it's healthy. Husbands 
and wives and children flourish in it. And so does the church. But there is one objection that the egalitarians give against these different roles that I didn't have an answer for. One that it's just an argument, none that we don't face today, but it is one that I didn't have an answer for. It is the slavery objection. We talked about consistency earlier in the area of divorce and remarriage and modesty and head covering. We haven't regulated those things to the dustbins of history. And we're also trying to keep the complementarian out of the dustbin. But the egalitarians will poke holes wherever they can. And they will say, here's one. If you endorse a, a wife or a woman to submit to the man in all cultures and in all times, then you endorse slavery in all cultures and all times. Because in the same passage where it says, wives, see subject to your husband, it says, slaves, obey your masters. So what's your answer? What do you say if someone says that? Well, you're not consistent. I just wonder, does anybody have a, uh, I'm not going to ask for the answer, but does anyone have an answer right off the top? You have one? You have one? Good. Okay. Some of you have been out there. Okay. <laughs> Well, you can uh, fill me in on what I missed after this. But, uh, no, it's, it's a good one. And I, I had thought of it many times. The Bible says, wives submit to your husband. also says, slaves obey your masters. If you say, wives submit, you must also say, slaves obey. This means you endorse slavery. And then they take the natural revulsion that we have against slavery that emotional revulsion that we have, and they pull people on their side with this argument. They do that. This is one of the ways, one of the methods they use. <clears throat> and and so so if, if slavery is evil and immoral, then... Asking a wife or a woman to fill only certain roles is evil and immoral. It's not just you shouldn't do. It is absolutely wicked. So they say we are consistent. We don't believe either applies today. Slaves, masters, and men and women don't have different roles. So we're, we're consistent. Now, if, and that's a big if, if the reason a slave should obey a master and a wife should obey her husband are the same, then we will need to apply them equally. But if the two are not the same, then this is a horrible slander against biblical submission. It's one or the other. Okay, well, let's look. What are the biblical reasons for a wife submitting? And the first is, is, well, the basic reason is the order of creation. And we had read part of this, uh, yeah, we had read this before in First Timothy 2. 
11 to 14, here it says, Let a woman learn in silence with all subjection. This is one of those complementarian verses. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to use up authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So you have the creation order. Adam first, then Eve. And then next one, they say Eve was made for Adam. That's in 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to read a few verses there in 1 Corinthians 11, rather. For I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. That's verse 3, 8 and 9. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And you talk about getting people emotionally disturbed. It is the idea that a woman is created for the man. But that is actually what what uh, God says. Now, this creation order and and authority structure is is such an integral part of God's superstructure that it can't be dismantled because it goes from woman to man to Christ to God. And you can't dismantle one portion of it with the other part intact without it collapsing. This chain of command is taught firmly in Scripture and is expected by God. So, that's as far as I'm going to go with uh, where we're looking at is the same reason an, a, a slave should obey a master. Is it the same reason as what a wife should submit to her husband? That's what we're examining. Now, slavery, is that the same, is that the same order and structure? Um, I would really like to hear what you, what you brothers would have to say about this. This is what, uh, what I, uh, came to understand it seemed the only reason given that a slave should obey his master is because he is a slave it's not grounded in creation now he should also because it's a it's a testimony to the lord that would be another one the bible says that you are a slave obey your master as unto christ because you're a you do that as a slave to adorn the doctrine but if you can get free, do so. If you can get free, take it. If you can't, don't worry about it. You can still serve Christ as a slave. But he never says that of a wife. If you can get free, get free. He doesn't say that. It's not the same. Jesus came to set the captive free, that's the slave. He did not come to split up the marriage. Marriage is wonderful. Slavery, too bad, but you can serve God there. Marriage is grounded in gender distinction. Well, actually it's grounded in the order, but the marriage are two. two. And slavery is grounded in economic and social differences. Slavery is an unfortunate situation while marriage is a God-ordained institution. Wives are a normal, a natural part of the home. Slaves are not. A wife is one 
with her husband. A slave is not one with his master. A woman's role is due to the created order. Slaves' roles are purely situational and economical. Slaves and marriages, or the two are not the same. It is a slander against biblical submission to say they are. The only parallel between the slave and the master and the parent and the child and the government and the people and the husband and the wife I'm going the wrong way now here. The only common commonality between all four of those is the word subjection. There is a subjection actually taking place in all of them. But that's about the only connection they have to each other. For a egalitarian to be consistent, they would need to eliminate the parent-child structure. And they're trying it. You're right. They're actually being pretty consistent. And they would need to eliminate the government structure, which they're trying that too, right? What you actually are seeing in society is the egalitarians trying to push their way on society. That's what we are seeing. And we are islands of a different kind. We do march to the different drum. In Virginia, they are actually, I think in Canada it's already partially true, but in Virginia, if you don't affirm your child want to change their gender, if you don't, if you as a parent don't affirm your child in that endeavor because they were somehow persuaded by somebody that they're somebody a different sex than what they're born with, they they will not get it into law at first because of the the things that are placed. But they're they're very honest with what they're trying to do. They're going to call that child abuse. And you can get charged with either a misdemeanor or a felony, and you will lose your children if you do not affirm because you have to do that. And that's just one of the many things like that. And there you go with criminal rights, defunding the police. If they are successful, we are headed towards chaos and a breakdown of society. It's actually self-destruction. Society cannot function without structure and order. And God made it that way. And neither can the home. And neither can the church. Or a business or a school. Praise God. He actually has given us what we need to prosper. Now we will, we will, by God's grace, we can prosper inside a society that is chaotic and so on. But it is my heart this morning to really just that we actually can prosper as God's people. In his structure, both men and women and our children, our children and our grandchildren 
and on down the line can prosper in that as well. We are strangers and pilgrims. We will march to the beat of a different drum. Let's do it with excellence. May God bless you.